So there's a time in our service when we kind of stop all the things that we're doing in some respects. We're not moving about. We're not moving so many places we can go. Our minds are racing. This is a part where we try to slow ourselves down to bring into this time and all the things that we have going on a chance to hear from God and his word. So we have a voice in this text of God who's speaking to us through a human author. As we hear that text, God is seeking to communicate with us again today. So God's brought you here on the snowy morning, daylight savings day, lots of things happening, but he's brought you here. And his word is speaking to you today. So what I ask is that you just give us our next 20, 30 minutes or so to hear that word and hear what God wants to speak to you in that. Hopefully nothing I say gets in the way of that. Hopefully I'm just able to make that clear of what God's saying. As you read in these words of scripture, know that God is seeking to speak to you through these words. So I'm going to pray that God will do that work in our hearts uh, through our time together. God, we do ask for your careful work in our hearts. God, we know your word is powerful. We know there's no human words that can accomplish the work that your word alone can do. But we thank you that you've chosen to use human speech, language that we can understand, so that as we look into nouns and verbs, understand sentences and paragraphs, God, that you make meaning to us, that there is understanding that you can grant us from your word of ways that we can live differently and have understanding. God, we ask in these few short minutes together that you would do that work in us in a unique way, in a special way for us today, that we would know you have met with us and you have taught us this morning. your name, amen. So wisdom is well-prized in Boston, I would say. Sometimes Boston is known as the Athens of America. You might have heard that. Um, And it goes back quite a ways in our history here as a city. Bostonians have always been and continue to be very ambitious, right? In our education, our institutions, the expectations for that, and our sports dynasties uh, in many ways. <clears throat> Another one seems to be on its way for the Bruins. See how that works out. Uh, day-to-day, work and, work and life, the hustle that we have. We're into getting ahead, working harder, trying to know more, trying to learn more, and we're constantly on the move as a city, as a people. You know, you can just take a simple ride on the T. And you can look across all the people and all the latest books and trends that they're reading. And it's like a, as good as a bestseller list. If you see a couple books repeated, you can say, hey, there's probably some reason I should be reading that book. Everyone seems to be reading it. There's this constant drive to know more, to understand better. You just go to work, right? And you meet up with your colleagues. You talk about them, what's going on. You find out about, hey, there's some BuzzFeed that you've missed. There's a new podcast that should be on your radar. Did you miss the latest tweets? There's new information that's constantly coming at you that you should be catching up on, maybe on your commute home that night, so that you can be in the know of all that's happening. All of this drives us to know more, to be better, to strive to be uh, the best we can be in the Boston area. We want to know more, but even more than that, we want to be, uh, be doing more and knowing more in all this context. And the culture pulls us to actually want to be wise, although that's not the word we would often use. We, we want to be in the know. We want to be aware. We want to know how to do life skillfully is oftentimes what we're getting at. So whether we want to be that colleague that uh, everyone can look at who's up on the latest industry trends and help can prevent the new product launch from failing because you're aware of the new research that everyone should come into account and you can save the day. We idolize that person. We put them in front and say that's, that's what we strive to be. Or as parents, right, we try to keep up on all the nutritional information, the latest doctor's reports, that new uh, clinical study that's come out, and now it's in People's Magazine, whatever it is. 
You're saying, hey, I want to do the best I can be, and I want to share that knowledge with other people, help encourage them, way to go. It's just part of our culture. It's where we're drawn to be here. And so we want to be wise in our knowledge, our dealings with others. It comes out in different ways, too. Like some of that's very academic, different, but even if you talk to a townie around here, ask somebody what's the best deal on natural gas or where to buy a used car around here, and you're going to get a spew of advice, a, f- a bunch of information on how you can be avoided getting ripped off, who knows the best opportunities, and how can you even get ahead. They're re- what, uh, ready and willing to share that information so you can take care of it. Deep down in the heart of this drive for wisdom is really a kind of underseated, dark drive within all of us, though. There's a very real desire that we want to be often better than others. We want to be in a position to know that we're superior. We want to know that we're slightly better off than other people in what we know and what we don't do and what we do choose to do with our time and our energies. We also sometimes want to put ourselves in the position where other people are actually jealous of their position and their standing. And so sometimes that drive for knowing more, doing more, being more well-known in our cultural context is really about putting ourselves toward the center. That's understated. It's not something we would say to ourselves like, oh, I I really want to know more because I really think I'm important and I want to do that. Like, no one says that out loud. But underlying so much of that drive is about putting yourself at the center and seeking to prize yourself as most valuable. Now, when I I think about this, it's not just our friends, our family. It's not just you. It's, It's me as well. I mean, it's present in all of us when we think about how we fit within the culture we find ourselves and we shouldn't be shocked, right? It's, it's part of the air of our culture. It's not talked about. It's not always realized that we're slowly putting ourselves at the center of this drive for wisdom, for understanding. No more than a goldfish can tell you that it's in water or it's in a fishbowl can a Bostonian tell themselves that they're in a self-centered driving culture. Who would think of it? It's so apparent in what we do. There's no way to think differently about it. So a couple nights ago, I was eating a burrito in a restaurant, and as I was sitting there by myself, it was kind of cool, looking out of the street, I happened to overhear two friends catching up after a period of some time. I don't know how long they were apart, and hey, I'm sitting there, and I'm eating alone, so you hear people who talk loud in a restaurant, right? So I'm sitting there, and they're catching up, the usual stuff. I'm not trying to pay attention. It's like, whatever. But I hear them take an interesting turn after they kind of sync up on just general catch-up of life stuff. They move to relationships. And as the two friends are catching up, they kind of say, okay, this is what's going on in their relationships, and this is what's going on in the other one's relationships, and they kind of share through what's going on. And it's at that point that my ears sort of perk up, because the conversation changes really directly as one friend speaks to the other with some words of advice, or really counsel, we could say, to understand how to read relationships. And she said them with so much passion and so much certainty, it was almost like it was a creed in her mind, something that she espoused to say from her culture. With words like, well, girl, if it's, it's about you. Are you happy? Are you getting what you need out of it? It's fine for now until someone else comes along. Don't give too much. Make sure you're getting things out of this too. Really simple things to be said friend to friend. Probably no idea I'm sitting there abstracting that, that conversation, to be fair. But as you're hearing that, you just hear it imbibed in the counsel, the culture. that This person has a wisdom and she's extolling it to her friends so that she knows, hey, this is the better way. This is how you should be thinking about what that's going. And uh, all the sources that we're going to turn to for information in our lives can, can be varied. And it could very much be our friends. 
And one of the big questions we have to ask ourselves is when we come to wisdom, is this true wisdom? Is this something we should be receiving? Or is there something to be wary of, the wisdom of the day, the wisdom that's out in our, our friends and our life from all the media that we imbibe that we should be cautious of? James takes us to that very question as we try to seek out what the Bible says about finding wisdom or seeking it and how to distinguish true wisdom from the wisdom we may receive from various sources or false wisdom. James 3 puts it, that question right to us and helps us discern true wisdom. And so our big idea for today is really going to point to the idea that true wisdom, or as we're going to call it, wisdom from above, produces righteousness through peace. peace. True wisdom, or wisdom from above, produces righteousness through peace. And here's going to be our basic breakdown of these few verses that we have together. Uh, it's not a ton of words. We're going to walk through it pretty, pretty uh, carefully, but not, uh, not very lengthy. And we're going to have this first question to figure out what wisdom looks like. And then James is going to do a contrast for us. He's going to talk about earthly wisdom and what we could call righteousness or wisdom from above. And he kind of characterizes them and contrasts them together so that we can understand those. So as we go through this, our section today is in chapter 3 of James. It's the very end of it. But you want to think about the fact that this really continues on through chapter 4 in the book, really down to about verse 10. He stays in the same structure and in the same theme. So we may be looking at more of that later. But today, we're just focusing in on this one section to answer about wisdom. Because I think there's an important cultural piece for us to understand as we fit as Bostonians in a world where wisdom is all about us. We're seeking it from various sources. What does James want us to learn about true wisdom? So we've read our text today. And we're going to start in with our first part, which is about the question, or what does real wisdom look like? And you see that in verse 13. James says, who is wise and understanding among you? So pretty clear. He's, he's asking, okay, can you identify the people? Who are the ones that are the wise people? His answer is, by their good conduct, let them show his works, or let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. So his point is, is the identification of real wisdom, what does it look like? What, what should you expect? Well, he says, real wisdom looks like meekness. Now, this is often meekness, believe it or not, is usually seen as a vice uh, by much of the world from ancient antiquity even to today. The idea of being meek isn't like a prized virtue. You can read all kinds of leadership volumes and ideas where don't be meek, speak up for yourself, stand in front of others, be assertive, push yourself. The idea of meek is not usually one that we would extol as a virtue. Except when we think about the words of Jesus, of course, as James is the half-brother of Jesus, he is often bringing us back to the words of Jesus, such as in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. You may remember the phrase, even if you couldn't look, find it exactly in your text, the meek shall inherit the earth. So James is continuing that echo idea of his half-brother Jesus as he explains this, saying that this is really the topic sentence for his discussion. That really when we want to think about what wisdom looks like, we should be looking for meekness, a humility in the way that it's presented. So James is still a little bit on a show-me mentality uh, here throughout his book. You might remember our discussion on works or the tongue uh, and different conversations. He, he's really practical. He's looking for things in our life. And so it's uh, not necessarily surprising that he looks for something from us to be able to demonstrate that wisdom is present. It's not okay to just be this belief or something kind of hidden in our minds. No, it should come out in actual action of meekness or humbleness on display. It's a contrast from what we often expect, right? When we think about wisdom, there's usually power or prestige for the folks that are the wisest in the world. 
And so one of the compliments we actually pay to people who are quite wise or powerful, and you get to meet them. I don't know if you've had those opportunities. You meet like somebody who's like really smart, a great professor, an author, someone who's great, and you go to them. And the highest compliment that we usually pay in our culture is after you meet that person, you say, wow, they're so down to earth. Like they're so approachable. They're so humble. Because our expectation is they're going to be a jerk. Okay, that's what we expect to be out of a wise person, someone who's extolled. So when you meet someone who's not that way, we say, hey, they're kind of like down to earth. That's a, that's a good person for me to relate to. Well, as much as that flip is different, so we have this expectation that people are jerks if they're wise and great in the world's eyes, and then you're surprised when you meet someone who's humble or meek despite those accolades. James is going to take that compliment that we often use about earthy or earthly and actually use that not as a compliment, but as his point of what this false wisdom or unhelpful wisdom of the day is. And he actually describes it as uh, earthly here in a few moments. We'll go through that. So on our second point, we go to verses 14 through 16. And in here we see that James unmasks this so-called wisdom as actually jealousy and selfish ambition. That underlying part I talked about early on, that as Bostonians we often have that present underneath some of our good-looking wisdom that we're aiming for. And this wisdom produces several results, and we're going to hear about the source of this wisdom as we go through these verses. And then finally, we'll wrap up with kind of the impact it is to our community. So I'm going to walk you through that as we look at the verses. But most importantly, we take a look at the verses on the screen, see them laid out for you. James starts off, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So as we think about his results that are coming out, so when this wisdom of the so-called wisdom of the world or earthly wisdom that I'm going to just refer to based on these verse, uh, verse 15, when we think about that, it's going to be present. It's going to cause these results of really bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart. So let's, let's start with just those. So you think about jealousy, right? Uh, the idea of both a combination of seeking what others have and the concept of really zeal of kind of moving that other person to a new position or taking something from them is often what's behind that word. So I've been listening to the biography of John Adams uh, at the moment, and I'm struck by the infighting of the Second Continental Congress. Have you looked into that? Have you heard that? It's amazing. We think of it as all like rosy and happy and, you know, there's like Sam Adams and there's John Adams and John Hancock and there's like every building in Boston like as a person apparently. It's like amazing. So you look around, you listen to the story and you go, wow, like they're, they're all these great guys. But you get into the details and you start going, man, these guys were like fighting all the time. It's a wonder. It's, I, I guess it's not much different today in Congress, surprisingly, but you look into that and you say, okay, like I guess it's been that way from the beginning. And as you start to read into it, you see there's such rivalry between New England and the southern states and how they view things, and they're fighting back and forth. And I'm really struck by the idea that there's so much unhappiness at the success of others. So John Adams' view when Jefferson is praised or his other constituents are are thought better in the Congress, and John Adams is angry and he's mad about that, and so then he argues, and then when Adams does well, you know, there's guys who won't shake his hand and walk the other way and ignore him. And it's just like, wow, such, such rivalry, such fighting such ambition to push themselves forward. And I couldn't help but think of that, because I'm listening to it at the moment, and as I read these verses, that like sort of every cunning device that we put in play of wisdom and and kind of move opposition, uh, there's this bitter jealousy that's within us. So when we think about 
wisdom and identifying and seeing its results. If you say, hey, is this false wisdom? Is this true? One of the things you can see, a mark that's going to come out of it, is it's going to cause that kind of outcome, right? If you take on the advice like, oh, you should argue this way, John Adams, against, uh, against Jefferson and make this point really essential so New England states aren't forgotten, what is he doing? He's trying to put himself into like, this position to lock himself down. And he's willing to do anything. He'll jump up. He'll yell. He'll get people behind closed doors and promise them things they can't do. Why? So he can get the results that he's aiming for. All of that falls well within human wisdom, not just in the Second, Second Continental Congress, but also in today. If you think about much of what the wisdom and advice is we receive about how to deal with friends, conflicts, how we work in our homes with our, our spouses as well as in our work, it's the wisdom of the day, oftentimes aiming for bitter jealousy to take root. Then there's also, you see, this idea of selfish ambition, um, really determination to get your outcomes, your driver, your results-oriented, trying to get that done. Oftentimes that can come from a place of selfish ambition, eyeing your prize and making sure you get it. The classic example of this in literature is really the story of Macbeth, right? You think about that Shakespearean story way back when, if you remember the highlights from that, uh, which is usually what I recall, but if you, you go back to that, there was this, this opportunity where there's a king named Duncan in the Scottish lands. And what happens is Macbeth deceives and comes against him in order to kill the king so he can take power. And his wife, Lady Macbeth, works really closely with him so that they can con the king and Macbeth can take the throne. His wife is then riddled with guilt and Macbeth himself has spent so much time trying to uh, fight for the throne that he sees that it was really worthless and not what he wanted in life. So there's a tragic story of how our unchecked selfish ambition can really lead to disastrous results. And that's really the story of us following oftentimes the wisdom that the world presents to us as we push toward how to make more money, how to increase our power. We continue to find ourselves uh, seeking just ambition for its own sake and what it gives to ourself. So then also, ultimately, it comes down to, as you see in verse 14, this idea that then to, to act like that's great, selfish ambition and jealousy is really boasting in falseness to the truth. Those, those ideas are gathered both boast and falseness to the truth. So in line together, we're saying, okay, to say that you're going for bitter jealousy and selfish ambition behind this worldly wisdom is actually boasting in false truth. And in verse 15, he starts to tell us uh, a contrast of what this is, or how would he describe it to us, or what's the source of this earthly wisdom. As you see from the text, he says, it's not from above. It does not come down from above, but it's actually earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. So he relates these words together in kind of a crescendo effect of just how bad this false wisdom is that we oftentimes are listening to. He says, first of all, it's not from above. So he's going to contrast that in a second with the good option of wisdom that does come from above. But he says, you know, it doesn't come from God. That's what he's referring to when he says above. So it's not coming from God. He says it's earthly, not in a good sense, but it's just part of what we have here on this fallen, sinful place where we live. He says it's unspiritual. What he means by that is that it has no part of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit's working within this wisdom. It's, it's not present. And then he goes on to even go further to say it's actually demonic in its source. So when we think about what that means, think about the, the concept of demonic activity, which is something we don't speak on on a highly regular basis at all. But when we look at this text directly, what we're saying is, is that there is an adversary to God and the spiritual realm that God works in. And that comes from Satan and the demonic realm. 
And we don't usually see that in huge, spectacular displays in our presence. What we see is things like this. The prevailing wisdom of the day that runs throughout the earth, the air that we breathe, the things that we listen to, the things that we watch, is very much influenced and driven by Satan, the adversary of God. And so as those lies and those understandings are brought into plain, simple things that we think of as innocuous, that is the work of Satan against God. Where do you see that present? When you see the Bible saying that there is truth and it's A, and then you have someone else who is a prevailing opinion, who's pushing that in every possible media possible, and they're saying it's not A. Who do you think is driving that? God? No, it's against his word, so there's no way that God would contradict himself. It has to be coming from his adversary. So it comes out in all of us because we're against God in our heart as sinners, right? So we can create some of this on our own. But there's also the the constant systematic work of the adversary of God throughout our world until Jesus finally brings that under reign in the future. So don't let that shock you when you see that. It's kind of an important reminder that we aren't just dealing with uh, the material world here. There is a spiritual reality that is also happening, and it comes out into our physical realm in very natural ways that our wisdom is influenced. But then look at what he talks about the impact. So you start buying into this kind of false wisdom. It comes out in these ways. He tells you the source of it. But then look at verse 16. When we start following that jealousy and selfish ambition, and that's present in our wisdom, the way that we're conducting ourselves, the way that we're thinking about living, there'll be disorder and every vile practice. So the constant spin toward chaos, the fight that we all have every day in our lives, whether in our jobs, in our homes, and in our communities, to be able to try to bring some order out of the chaos that it naturally spins into. All of that is bringing things back to the creative order. The world left to its own devices would just continue to spin in chaos and disorder. And as we listen to the advice that comes from just the pure earthly realm, or even from the demonic influences that come through that, it drives toward disorder and chaos. That's what's happening. So when we see communities breaking apart, people at odds, when we see understandings across uh, families breaking, when we see churches coming apart because of a misunderstanding of an action, each of these things are driven in many ways by this earthly, unspiritual wisdom that we often espouse to. So we shift then to a transition. James says in verses 17 and 18, we start to talk about what he calls righteousness, Or really, for the sake of of, uh, comparison, uh, he talks about kind of wisdom from above. So we put the next verses up here. See in verses 17 and 18, he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So as James starts to describe wisdom, first off, this true wisdom... He describes it as above, coming from above, which harkens back to chapter 1. If you remember that kind of more familiar section of James in chapter 1, the beautiful lineup that he has there. He talked about us asking for wisdom if we lack it, that it comes from above, and that God in his character is happy to give us wisdom if we ask for it. So he's re-referencing that information from chapter 1 when he talks about it as wisdom from above. Above is kind of like a circumlocution to describe God without having to say God's word. The Jewish folks were obviously very careful about using God's, God's actual name in any way uh, that could be perceived as casual. So sometimes they were just very used to using kind of circumlocution around an idea to sort of call above rather than just say God's name in the text. Nothing wrong with that, but you can see the reverence that he was trying to, ex- 
uh, do that and probably just part of his upbringing and, and way of viewing that. So he describes it as wisdom from above. Then he goes into a seven-part description of what that's like as he tries to describe it for us. Now, when you read that, if you're like me, uh, I don't love lists. So like, if I have to keep scrolling on my phone, I get annoyed with that article really fast. Like, I'm like, give me the bullets. Let's get over it. Here we are. Um, anything that's a long list, you tend to go, okay, what's the point? He's going to length here to give us the characteristics to describe true wisdom. So what he's doing is he's helping you spot when you see true wisdom out there. So I said at the beginning, talked about two friends talking, right? Don't mean to over, over uh, put them under the radar or on the spotlight, I should say. But, you know, we couldn't get true wisdom from lots of sources. You could meet with a friend who could share true wisdom with you. And when you hear that advice, this is giving you a grid with which to judge that, to understand, is this the true wisdom from God that I should be taking in and understanding? So let's look at these seven points that he puts out here of what it's like. Uh, The first four that he puts out there that we have in our text of pure, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, one interesting thing he's doing here is he actually has them all alliterated in the Greek text. So they all start with the same letter at the beginning. They kind of flow those four together. So I'm going to deal with those all at one time, and we'll take a pause. So it talks about pure. We think about what uh, pure entails. Uh, obviously, it points to sinlessness being present. So when we think about wisdom, one of the key characteristics is, does it drive you to sin? Then it's not true wisdom. That's what we can ask ourselves. So if you're looking at a, a particular piece of information that someone's saying, hey, you need to do this. You need to do this different thing. It'll make you wiser, healthier, whatever. If it points to you sinning in direct violation to the scriptures, you can know carte blanche, that's not wisdom from God. That's something God is not asking you to be wise in such a way that would cause you to sin. And that's what he points to with the idea of pure, the sinlessness, the blemishlessness uh, that comes from that word. And he talks about being peaceable. That's the next way. So if your ideas or insights, the advice that those are giving you, are to stir up conflict with others, then we must consider that as this so-called earthly demonic wisdom. The wisdom from God isn't seeking to drive conflict with others. So there'll be divides, as James indicates, between the world and the Christian. And that's a natural friction point and something we shouldn't necessarily back away from to understand that there will be opposition. But if the advice that we receive from other people are to drive wedges between other believers or to drive wedges between our own family and our friends for the sake of just conflict on its own and somehow putting you at the center, you can understand that that's not good advice. That's the wisdom of the earth that isn't to be taken on. He talks about gentleness. Uh, gentleness really refers to the idea of kind of a friendly equilibrium. You know, you know some people that are probably gentle. Uh, dudes don't usually like to be called gentle as a, a rule, but, you know, it's actually not a bad thing when you meet a really masculine, happy guy who is gentle. You know, hey, that guy actually just likes people, likes caring for them, can totally be amiable, that's a great characteristic. And we know that's true of both men and women when we think about gentleness being present. But for sometimes we have kind of a, a reticence to use that word, but the biblical text is calling us to advice and demonstration of the idea of gentleness. So in John Steinbeck's novel, uh, East of Eden, there's a character called uh, Samuel Hamilton. And he exhibits this trait well. He's, uh, there's this main character named Adam, and there's uh, a lot of things going on in the story as they're kind of in the early... Uh, early history of California and the settlement there. Uh, This guy, Adam, has all the things going for them, right? He's got uh, pedigree. He's got money. 
He's got uh, prestige, and he's got the best land in California that's going to grow really, really well. But this other guy, Samuel, who's the guy I'm pointing out that we should emulate, has none of those things. He has very little money. He has literally the worst land in the story that never seems to grow over many decades of time and ends up being most of this very long book that's kind of dense, but that's like the point. Sorry, spoiler, his land doesn't really grow. But what he does have is this incredible gentle spirit. Throughout the story, he's a foil to almost every character as his is just uniquely gentle, from his large family to the smallest children to immigrants to uh, slaves that were present in the time and, and other things. He's incredibly kind and generous. There's no one that he doesn't try to help in the story. There's no one that he doesn't have a good word towards. And he constantly is remarking about how he can help people, and he serves as a mentor, really, to the main character in the story as well. And he's even described as a gentle man who works to get along with everyone. That's really what's envisioned by this word. So when we think of advice present in the world, that's what's aiming for. Are you getting advice that's driving you toward that kind of spirit to others, to get along, to be able to care for them and be easy to reach with? And the last, last one of that uh, alliteration is open to reason. So imagine that. You have wisdom that's actually open to reason. Shouldn't be as contradictory as it sounds, and yet so often it's not, right? This really is an incredible trait, I think, for the day for us to be thinking about. That true wisdom from God means that it's open to have a conversation. It's open to hear what's going on and have a dialogue and understand what is the situation. Um, I think so often we think that the approach of wisdom is to know everything and to be closed off from conversation, to be closed off to reconsidering. But really this idea points to an openness, an understanding. Uh, I wouldn't read too much into the reason from our kind of Lockean rationalistic world that we're now after, but if we think about the idea of being open and receptive to new information, that's really what it's driving at. So some pretty concrete ways that you can kind of run a grid through the advice you get, the things you read, things you listen to, to know, is that good advice? Is that something I should take in? As you kind of go through the the last couple, uh, last few, about three left, uh, talks about full of mercy and good fruits. So this is really one concept, the idea of full of mercy and uh, full of good fruits is really just one idea. James has used mercy as a a great hallmark of his view. He used it in chapter 2 to describe uh, the action we should have toward outsiders and how we receive people into our assembly. So for him, mercy is a a kind of a catchword to describe that second commandment of Jesus. So we think of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. And then that second commandment is loving your neighbor as yourself. Mercy is like a keyword catchword for what James means when he refers to that loving our neighbor as ourself. He uses mercy to kind of encapsulate all of that. And he puts the ideas of good fruits behind that because he's not talking about ethereal theology here. He's talking about actually loving your neighbor, actually doing something that people can see like fruit that's visible. Um, and that's what he's saying. This wisdom will have that characteristic to it as well. Then he's got the last two. Don't worry, we're still there on number seven here. We're getting to number six and seven. The last two are uh, impartiality and sincere. And these two words uh, in the text uh, in Greek, they have the same first letter to tell us there's a negation. You think of it like an un in English. So it'd be like, they're not really words, but if we call it like unhypocritical or un, uh, un, unpartial, I guess might work, unpartiality. So it's so hard to do that. But you got the idea. It's like un, how that works in our language. So they're like parallel thoughts that he's putting both 
against each other as negations. So when you think about what true wisdom is like, it's not partial. Okay, so remember all that work he did in chapter 2 to tell us how we receive people and not be prejudiced against them. No, actually, this wisdom should not be driving you toward partiality, discrimination, prejudice in any way, or it's bad advice. And sincerity, if it calls, tells you to, act, to say one thing and act a different way, it's not at all the correct wisdom that you should be following. So that's his characteristics that he walks us through here carefully. And look at the results that come from this. He talks about in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness that's sown in peace by those who make peace. See, the idea here, righteousness here for James, is not quite the same type of righteousness that we read or think about in the letters of Paul. It's, it's not at odds with Paul in any means, but it's more of like a direct emphasis. It's James' concept of, of maybe um, rightness is probably a better way of thinking about it, being in agreement or followership with God's law and God's teachings. So it's kind of that rightness, doing right. Um, as opposed to kind of all the righteousness and standing points that we see that are very true from Paul, but that's not quite his emphasis from this word righteous. Uh, And it's about us being close to following the teachings of Jesus. So the rightness of wisdom from above is accomplished by peace, by peacemakers, people who are doing peace. So peace is envisioned here. And the idea of this peace that he's talking about is really a horizontal peace. It's thinking about how we deal relationally with others, Uh, You might have heard the Hebrew word of shalom. That's the concept that's really behind what he's pointing to here. So when we think about true wisdom and how it should play out in our lives, it really should look like the shalom of the Jewish heritage of James. That as we seek to make peace with others, creation is better accorded to how it was made, right? If man and women are able to get along, if brother and brother are allowed to agree and work together, if the multitude of diversity present in our world are able to work together, we're seeing glimpses of the kind of order and goodness that God has intended before sin came into our world. Peace drives those people together. Peace reconciles people who are otherwise put at, put at odds. And that is the work that James is prizing as the wisdom. So when he thinks about all the context and he goes into in chapter 4, he really is emphasizing this peace, peace element I was going to say peace of peace, but that gets a little confusing. So this peace is present in the wisdom uh, that, that is coming from above so that we can make reconciliation and agreement with all the people in our midst, specifically in the church is where James is going to go. So when you think about your relationship with others, uh, this is what we should be hearing in the advice that we're giving. How is, if I go to my brother and I explain advice and I tell them something to do, you should be looking to be able to reconcile with those around you. As we have points of friction, points of disagreement, the aim of the advice and counsel should be bringing you closer to peace. So by way of application, I want to look at just a couple of areas really quickly about how we can kind of discern earthly wisdom that's present, that we imbibe, and how to relate that to true wisdom that comes from above. So I'm going to look at three spheres really quickly with us, thinking about work. So in... An HBR article, uh, the Harvard Business Review, just published March and April, uh, this edition. There's a study by a Michigan State researcher that's cited. The researchers asked managers to track the help they gave colleagues over 10 days and how the recipients responded. The team found that when people lent a hand without being asked, they were less likely to be shown gratitude than when they were helped upon request. So get that, if you ask for help, people aren't as gratitude and not as much thankfulness around that, but if they did ask and you did do it, then they're thankful. 
So uh, additionally, the study participants also felt less sociable and engaged at work a day after they were given uh, proactive assistance. The conclusion, you shouldn't volunteer to help your coworkers. Really, that, that's our advice from Harvard Business Review. Now, I'm sure there's a whole lot more to the concept, and many, many more pages we can consider, but, but that's the advice. Don't help your coworkers, because they're going to be more grateful if you wait for them to beg you for it. Then, then that'll be really productive and helpful, and they'll think you're a better person and give you more gratitude. Okay, like aside from just, I don't know, pure logic and questioning the validity of the study and, and those kind of routes, just think about that in line with the scripture, right? How would this advice square with the call to be peaceable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits? Sounds like it's ignoring all of those. It sounds like it's really putting you at the center. This is good advice for you of how to conduct yourself with your colleagues and act as a manager because it'll make you more important. They'll recognize your greatness. Let's extol that. That's not good advice. That's contrary to what the scriptures are asking us to do. We should be loving our neighbors. We should be being peaceable, looking for opportunities to love them, opportunities to respond with gentleness and mercy. And so then what do we do? As we meet with Christians, we could discuss that. We could talk through that. But we're not debating whether or not that's the advice we should all follow. We should be talking about instead, what does it look like to show gentleness in the workplace? How do you respond as a manager to have good fruit and mercy toward your employees? These are the questions we should be finding. We know what the goal is. We know what the target is from the text. This is the wisdom. Now, how to flesh that out, those nitty-gritty questions, that's where we can have dialogue and understanding of how to actually do that. That's the piece of applying wisdom. So we hear that and we go, that's bad advice. I'm not following that. I don't care what HBR writes. That's a terrible idea of how I should conduct myself with other folks. But I need to be thinking through the grid of, okay, if this is the goal of what I do, how do I actually do that from a day-to-day basis? What about in the home? It's an interesting concept. There's lots of, lots of ideas out there of what we can be doing in the home. So psych, uh, Psychology Today had an article from 2017 that questions whether you should raise obedient children. An essential baby article as well points out the idea that parents shouldn't expect their children to obey them, but instead should provide a caring and optimistic environment that will encourage children to cooperate. I've yet to see that level of cooperation, but I'd love to see that. That'd be great. So, And then on a debate forum thread as well, uh, on should teenagers obey their parents? The wisdom of the crowd cited that kids should experience their own lives no matter how many mistakes they make, and the parents can ruin their children's dreams, and to obey their parents can stifle their critical thinking and ability. So how do we evaluate that? Okay, I think this we bring up the first point of the seven characteristics of pure. So we have a very clear command in Scripture for children to obey their parents and to honor their father and their mother. So that's definitively clear that it's sinful to say that children shouldn't obey their parents at just face value. Now, we can nuance it, we can understand what that means, and is there an exception, and what are these other clauses? That's fine. But we shouldn't be starting with a premise that says, actually, children should not obey their parents. We're like, well, that's interesting, because God's wisdom says they absolutely should. So we know that there's a problem in this advice. So as you're reading through that article, uh, or surfing for weird stuff that's controversial like I am, then you know that's stuff that you shouldn't be imbibing, that you shouldn't be believing. You should say, hey, that's contrary to what God is teaching. I have to have my hands up. Now, maybe I can read it. Maybe I can discern it. Maybe I can have a conversation with with someone who doesn't hold the same beliefs. But my hands should be up knowing this is not the wisdom that I should be seeking. Last one. In the church. 
So this text that we're going through should be guarding us as a church family from the earthly wisdom that is so prevalent in our lives. If we're bitterly jealous of other churches or even of other members in our own body and and thinking about how they are thought better of than us or we have selfish ambition to put ourselves uh, in a different position closer to them, you know, God forgive us. That's exactly the kind of wrong thinking that this text is trying to drive away from us and our wisdom. So the, as we follow that route and we think, okay, how can I put myself in advancement or how can I think about this other way of, of doing things from, from other wisdom, it's ultimately going to bring disorder, the text tells us, and every kind of vile practice. So there's a huge warning to us as a, as a body to think about how we do that. So we've seen in the text that the antidote is asking God for wisdom from above. We know the marks that are most clearly what we should be looking for is peace. So peacemaking, along with the other six marks that we've seen, are the wisdom that produces righteousness in our midst. So be on guard for great ideas or opportunities and other people that come up. If you're constantly thinking about how someone else could improve and you want to impart your counsel, think about that piece of peace. Think about how that should be our driving motivation. Are we actually seeking to reconcile and to forgive? Are we marked by mercy in our decision with gentleness and purity? Or are we trying to get ahead or sometimes put ourselves as better or over someone else? So we need wisdom for sure in a big way to know how to handle all the interpersonal relationships that we deal with as a church, right? There's lots of things that can go wrong, and that's something greatly that we should be praying to God, that he would continue to bless us and work in our hearts so that we can love and care for one another in great ways. That's what this text points to. So in conclusion, if you're feeling like there's a lot of things for you to do and walk away with from this, good in some respects, that's fine. But uh, I also want to remind us of Matthew 12, 42 where one of the self-designations of Jesus is that he is one who is wiser than Solomon. So whenever we speak about wisdom, we need to remember that Jesus was perfect in his display of wisdom. And that he was not just the perfect display of it, but actually the personification of wisdom that was talked about throughout the Old Testament. So when we think about our failings and our shortcomings, we can look at Jesus and know that he's absolutely wisdom in flesh. And as he perfectly did all of this life, lived righteously before us, and as we put our faith and trust in him, he is our wisdom. He can have that imparted to us. And so that gives us hope in the midst of our failings and ways that we're going to fall short in this despite our best efforts, that Jesus is our true wisdom, and we can keep our eyes and trust in him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. We pray that you would work in our minds to be discerning of all the, the wisdom that is so-called that's presented to us. And God, we would come back to your word, see what we know to be true from Jesus and your, your life. God, I ask that you would uh, help us be a church who seeks to follow closely your word and your teachings and look for these marks in the things we believe and try to follow in your name.